cancer journey is unique for everyone. It is time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to episode 22 of the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast. I'm Jen Cochran. My guest today is Tanja Thompson. She was born and raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana, a small town in the Midwest. Upon graduating from high school, she went to work at a nursing home while her friends went to work at Dana and Harvester, the largest car manufacturing plants in the Midwest. This was not her path. She knew her ticket out of poverty was to get an education, so she enlisted in the Air Force for the educational benefits. Tanja is a two-time breast cancer survivor and helps individuals in being their own health care advocate in educating them about treatment options and early detection through outreach. Tanja also delivered a powerful TEDx talk on her breast cancer journey entitled From Tragedy to Triumph. She is the founder and CEO of the Breast Cancer Move Foundation, a nonprofit 501c3, where she helps military, veterans, caregivers, and other uniformed service members move from the tragic diagnosis of the disease breast cancer into the light of triumph. While no one else in Tanja's family has been diagnosed with breast cancer, at the same time she was diagnosed, three other military women in her office were also diagnosed. The lingering question for her is if it was an environmental trigger that brought on her breast cancer. Welcome, Tanja. I'm so happy to have you here today. I'm really excited to have you share your story. I have had the opportunity to see you speak a little bit about it, and I've seen your TED Talk. So I'm really excited to have you share it with the listeners today. So why don't we just go ahead and jump in? Well, thank you very much, Jennifer, and thank you for having me. One of the things when I think about my story, I think about the beginning. For me, the beginning was in 2003 when I had my baseline mammogram. And at the time I was active duty in the Air Force. It was one of those things that, okay, it's that time you're at the age, even though you don't have a history in your family, why don't you go ahead and get your mammogram? It was one of those check the block in the military. We had a lot of those, especially as they related to our health. About 14 or so months later, I start having pain in my left breast. I thought it was from nursing my son, who was at the time five years old. So I just really thought it was latent pain. I went to the doctor and I was feeling tired. She said, well, you don't have a history of breast cancer. You just had your mammogram just, you know, 14 or so months ago. And I'll never forget this. She said, breast cancer doesn't hurt. They still say that. And I still hear it too. She said, that is not one of the symptoms. But she said, you know what, Tanja, you're in the military. It's not going to cost us anything. Why don't we just go ahead and get you a mammogram? When I got my mammogram, it was either that day or either the the next day. I I don't even remember when. I remember the mammogram. I remember sitting in the waiting room. I remember the lady coming back and saying, you know what? We saw something strange on your film. Well, she said, do you have on deodorant? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, you're supposed to come and not have on any deodorant. I said, yeah, I did have on some deodorant. She said, okay, well, let's take the film again. So another mammogram. 
didn't think anything else about it. And see, at that particular time, we actually wiped off the deodorant off my arm. And she called me back a week later and she's like, it doesn't seem like we're getting this film right. Can you come in again? And this time, do not put on any deodorant or anything. So I did. Now, mind you, my personality is probably different than most. I don't fear much of anything. And not one time during this time was I afraid. Breast cancer did not even come to mind. I had the mammogram the second one. They called me, I think this is the time she called me into the office. I remember calling me while I'm on travel. And I was like, I don't really have time to come in for an appointment. I'm doing da-da-da-da. And then she said, what about this particular day? I said, oh no, that's our family vacation. I can't come in that day. She's like, well, what day are you getting back from family vacation? I said, on this particular day. She said, well, come in at seven o'clock in the morning. Came in at seven o'clock in the morning. And that's when she said, Miss Thompson, you have breast cancer. And she said, the ironic thing, the reason why we wanted to make sure we got it right is because not only was it in one breast, she said, but it was throughout both of your breasts. She said, like a buckshot. She said, you have a fast moving cancer. She said, we looked at your results from 13, 14 months ago to now. And she's like, it is just astonishing. And she actually showed me the picture. See this sector here? She said, if we even did the margins here, we will be going into another cancer. If we did the margins on this side, we'll be going into another cancer. She said, you're going to probably have to have a mastectomy. <laughs> you know what? First thing I said, I probably put my hand on my on my forehead. I said, doctor, how you telling the 40-some-year-old woman who's still trying to get her groove on that you, you about to take her rack? <laughs> just started laughing. So we're going to have you taken care of. She said, but before we decide the next course, she said, I need for you to go and get a, a biopsy. She said, it looked like the right breast is contained. She said, no, 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 no. It was the opposite. She said, look like the left breast, the cancer is contained, but the right breast, I think that's what it was. The right breast, we're going to get a biopsy on. And I was like, I didn't think anything about, think anything else about it went to the radiologist and the radiologist looked at the film on the left and he looked on the right. The technician said, well, doctor, it's only an order for the right breast. He said, I don't care if it's an order for the right breast in between breasts. He's like, I'm looking at some film that could potentially say that she has cancer. And, and the technician said, well, you can't do that. He's like, oh, yes, I can. He put in the order to have both breasts done. So they biopsied the right breast and they biopsied the left breast. It came back that the left breast was worse than the right breast. When I talk about people who are your lifesavers, he was my lifesaver because if he had not intervened, it probably would have been a lot worse. Moving fast forward, end up having a bilateral mastectomy. They took the nipples, they took the sentinel nodes, they took all of the tissue except just enough to put the expanders under to do reconstruction. Reconstruction, that piece wasn't bad. I didn't have to do chemo. I didn't have to do radiation. And the theory was that since they had taken all of the tissue, they were pretty confident they had gotten all of the cancer. Well, five years later, bam, what happens? Fill a lump on my left breast. I go to the doctor, go to the breast clinic. I said, you know, I feel something right here. She said, oh, that's probably nothing. That's probably just tissue. I said, er? I said, now, mind you, I have silicone breasts. There shouldn't be anything there. She's like, oh, you're probably just being paranoid. It's probably nothing. And I was like, yeah, wait a minute. Now, mind you, I wasn't active duty, but I was still in the military care system. 
I immediately left out of that office and went to my plastic surgeon, my second lifesaver. Immediately the same day, he said, you know what, Tanja? He said, if I didn't know you, if I didn't know and didn't do your surgery, he said, I may have thought that the same thing that she did. Well, come to find out after a mammogram that showed nothing, after an ultrasound that didn't show anything, they were still not confident on one way or the other. And they, and they said, basically, Tanya, what do you want to do? So the doctor said, let's do a needle biopsy. The needle biopsy comes back. Oh, it's just scar tissue. I think they thought they had a win, but not for me. I said, I don't care what it is. I want it out. Now, mind you, my youngest son, who was 10 at the time, was in and out of the hospital with portal hypertension, internal bleeding. So when I'm getting the needle biopsy done, my daughter's taking care of me and my husband taking care of our son. And like I said, the needle biopsy came back that it was nothing. I said, you know what? I really don't care what it is. It just needs to come out. I had to reiterate that. And one thing I've learned that during any type of medical process, you know, whenever you are put on the spot where you need to make a stance, you have to make that stance. I made that stance. And I told him, I said, I want it removed. I want it out. I said, because, and the thing is, I kept saying, it's not supposed to be there. It's not supposed to be there. They took it out. And what they found is not only had one cancer, but I had three cancers. I don't get mad. As I mentioned earlier, I don't fear and I don't get mad. But what I got mad about this time, it wasn't for me, but it was for all the other women or men that come in to say, hey, there's something wrong. This isn't right. They just dismiss you. I'm glad I did not let them dismiss me. I would have continued to go on. The cancer would have spread, would not have been able to catch it as soon as they did. Because mind you, I have no tissue there. The only thing, so it was just a cancer that was just growing. If I had not stepped in when I did, it probably would have spread and have been a lot worse than what it was. And because this was my second time with breast cancer, I ended up having chemo and radiation and all the other drugs and different things that go along with that. When I talk to individuals, you know, one of the things they said, how do you keep such a positive attitude? How do you stay so upbeat? And I said, because I'm not a victim. I'm not a victim of cancer. I said, as I'm a survivor, but I'm a survivor in life. And this is just one of life challenges that we are faced with on the day-to-day, just no different than you walking outside and having to navigate what it is that you need to do, how you need to move forward. I think for us as women, we have to learn to be in control and we have to be the one that's in control. And in that piece of being in control is understanding and knowing about your diagnosis. When they speak to me in their lingo, I bring it right back to them. Because of my time in the military and serving in the different places that I've served, I've had that wealth of opportunity to be able to interact with so many different people and having so many different people to to call on. Even my plastic surgeon, he's like, you are like no one else that I've ever met. He did a write-up on me, I think, because when I had it the second time, I ended up having a trans flap reconstruction. As a part of my book, 
and the part of who I am, one of the things that I did not see a lot of was actual undocumented pictures of women who've gone through these different things. Well, I documented that entire process. So October is when my book is going to be released and it shows undocumented pictures. And when I say undoctored, they're gross. They're really ugly. There's nothing pretty about them, nothing at all. And when I think about the pictures and I think about that process was radiation. I had third degree burns from radiation. And the doctor said the reason mine was so horrific is because that tissue was already compromised from the first surgery. And then on top of that, having to stretch it from the reconstruction is from one side to the, almost to my stomach to where the third degree burns are. And I actually have pictures of that. And even Jennifer, like you mentioned in my TED talk, actually show a picture of my back where the radiation had penetrated all the way to my back. And you think about that what else is being affected by this radiation? If it's that intense to go through my skin, it has to affect something else. That's the whole nature of it, to kill things. So what else is it killing? My other journey is when we talk about these things, we need to educate ourselves. Even with my reconstruction with the trans flap, I'm thinking, okay, I'm healthy. I'm, everything's going to go good. I had like open area where I actually have pictures where, I don't forgot the name of it. Necrosis. Necrosis, yes, where it did not close. And people would look at, not people, but like my husband, and he's like, oh my gosh, doesn't that hurt? I was like, no, I don't feel anything. But just that whole journey in documenting the undoctored pictures, because you don't see them. I've looked and I've looked and I've looked. The pictures are actually going to be in color as well to really give the true nature of what we have to go through. You see this right here, but you take off these clothes, you'll see where someone has gone through this process of breast cancer, this is what they look like without their clothes on. So, you know, you think about, we walk around as women every single day, carrying the load, doing what we need to do as far as family, friends, at our jobs. And we don't complain. We wanted to complain. We have a lot of crap to complain about if we wanted to. And just by the nature of the things that we are doing and we don't complain, that's a test of who we are. It's so interesting where you say like your plastic surgeon and educating you and really people knowing what their diagnosis is and what that means. Mm -hmm. I remember going into my plastic surgeon's office and so I walked in and she was quizzing me, but I didn't know she was quizzing me. So she was like, so could you tell me, you know, what's your diagnosis? And, mm. and I had brought her a file with copies of all of my stuff. Not sure if she had already had it sent over or, and she said, yeah, yeah, I don't need to look in there. I just want to know what you know. Mm. And I said, oh, you want to know what I know? So then I started telling her all the things that I knew. And she was oh. like, she was like, all right, that's cool. She's like, I just wanted to know how much you understood about what was going on. Cause I want to make sure that my patients know what's going on. Like this isn't an easy process to go through. A lot of things are being thrown at you. And I want to make sure that your decisions are coming from a place of knowledge. Right. 
which I love. And that's what I tell people as well. I've met so many people that can't make a decision. And I'll say, it might be your team. If you're struggling to decide which way to go, you need a new team because you're not getting the confidence from your team that you need to make a decision. And I've seen people change a surgeon or change a plastic surgeon. And all of a sudden they've made a decision. Their surgery scheduled are off to the races where for a month they were just stuck. Yeah. Place to be in. Not when, not with something like this, because that hesitation by the time you find out you're already behind the power curve, period, with breast yeah, cancer. Absolutely. It's already, it's already there. Even in my case, mine was so fast moving that the first week of May, by right before Labor Day, I was, actually, I was having surgery. It happened just that fast. Even for the military, it's still relatively fast. There was no hesitation. Even in my case, it was nothing but urgency. And the urgency, and one of the things I liked about the military, they triage in that they brought in everyone that they called it the breast tumor team or something like that. This was at Old Walter Reed Hospital in, in, in <laughs> D.C. And they brought in the entire team. They specifically looked at your case. They went into conference looking at what was the best option. And you know, one of the things I sometimes struggle with is at the same time that I was diagnosed, three or either four women in my department was also diagnosed. I often wonder, and we were all military at the time, and we were in Crystal City, Virginia. The Navy was originally in that building, and we had heard that the reason the Navy left out was because of the asbestos. I would like to think that that was treated before we moved into the new building. It just seems so ironic. I mean, when I say same time, I got diagnosed in April, May time frame. When I came back to work three months later, there was three other women that had also been diagnosed at basically the same time, so definitely the same year. And one, I actually saw her on the elevator. She was a heavy set lady before I left. When I came back, and you know how you look at someone and you're like, wow, that person looks familiar. She was probably had already dropped at that time 100 pounds. Wow. And when hers was diagnosed, it was stage four. She ended up dying. And that was really, really hurtful for me. And even being a survivor, you always wonder, especially if you know someone, it's like, why did I live and this person have to die? I still struggle with that, just knowing that I was able to receive the treatment that I need. I was able to go to the doctor, find out what was going on and not take no for an answer. But that doesn't happen for everyone. Even the environment being triggers I believe is so true, which we don't see a lot of research on. And that is the triggers that prompt some of these cancers, especially for individuals who don't have a cancer in their family. To me, there's maybe an outlier of a correlation that you had three or either four individuals at the same time get cancer. Sometimes it's not a coincidence, but it's something else. I don't know, but it definitely makes me think about how things correlate. And a lot of times we try to dismiss 
hurts them when they actually, there is a relationship. That's another reason why I started my nonprofit. My nonprofit is the Breast Cancer Move Foundation. It is to help women, especially those that are in uniform, being military as well as police officers and firefighters, understand the diagnosis. Because if you think about all of those occupations, they are asked to go into harm's way, to go into different places that may have asbestos, that has fire damage. Um, We put on a gas mask every year to see if we can take those type of toxins. So, you know, you think about what's going into our bodies, especially as females. You know, we have more orifices going inward and you just don't know what it is that has triggered some of these things. And even for the military, I was doing some research probably about a month or so ago. And it was talking about the number of breast cancer cases that's in the military, which is higher than most, even though we do have that access to care. Yes. Wow. That is really interesting. The topic of studies is definitely something I want to talk a little bit more about. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk more with Tanja. Enjoying the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast? Come on over to the Facebook group where you can join the community and participate in the conversation during the week. I hope to see you there. Now back to the show. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with Tanja Thompson. We have been talking about her breast cancer journey. While we were off the air for our break, we were chatting a little bit about the different medications and things. Breast cancer survivors in particular have a hormone-related component to their breast cancer where their cancer feeds off of estrogen or progesterone. There is a follow-on treatment that most of us are prescribed, and it might look like tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor for folks that are postmenopausal. I know for me, I did not tolerate that well. And I'd love to hear your journey with that because you had some challenges with those medications as well. I did, Jennifer. You hear the term, and I put it in quotes, the medication of choice, and that is tamoxifen. I took tamoxifen soon after chemo. I immediately started having these horrific, horrible, horrible night sweats, day sweats, evening sweats, out having dinner sweats, at work sweats. I can remember giving a presentation where there was 50-some people in the room. I'm standing at the podium, and I can feel the heat bubbling up inside. And then all of a sudden, here it comes out on the outside. Mind you, I am under lights, but the lights are not that harsh. No different than the lights you have in your home. And I just immediately start sweating. I could see people looking around in the room. One lady actually got up, went to the bathroom, and brought me a bunch of towels to clean my face because I was sweating. So this went on at least a year and a half. And I kept telling my doctor, this is horrible. I can't take it anymore. I can't sleep. My husband touches me and I immediately start on fire. So they start giving me this medication. And right now I don't know what the name of it. It just kept increasing the dosage. I tried things offline, nothing worked. It got to the point, he's like, Tanja, I've given you the max that we can give you. Here, try this on top of it. I was like, no, I'm not doing it. He's like, well, you need to take this at least to wean yourself down. Now, mind you, I told you I spent 20 some years in the military, Air Force, Senior Master Sergeant. I said, I don't need this stinking wean, nothing. 
it. So I just decided to do a cold turkey. That wasn't a good idea. I start having brain tremors. When I told my doctor, he's like, you're on a medication that once it gets into your system, you have to wean yourself off. You can't just stop cold turkey. That was a lesson learned. But that wasn't the only hormone therapy I was on. I was on two other ones. The next one was great, but I fell all the time. I was fall up the steps. I would fall down the steps. I would fall walking on grass. And that lasts for maybe like six months. And I went to the doctor and he's like, Tanja, I can't have you falling. You may break something, it may be worse. And then the next thing they put me on, I was constantly sick. So after probably about four years of going back and forth with these medications, I just decided to stop. I said, no more. I said, you know what? If it's going to come back, it's going to come back. But believe me, I am not going through these medications and taking these medications anymore because the side effects are worse to me is worse as having the actual disease. I think that's where our power comes from to be able to say no more. At some point in life, you have to make a decision that either you're going to stay in this place where you're not feeling good, where you feel that you are a victim and that this thing is overpowering you versus you having the power to say, no, I'm not going to take it anymore. And I don't regret the decision that I made, not one bit. It's been, what, about nine years since the second diagnosis and I haven't had anything reoccurrence or anything. And I actually have started losing weight probably about two years ago. I know, right? And, and you know what, Jennifer, I think that's another thing. We do not give these drugs, chemotherapy, radiation, they just do. I stopped chemo the latter part of 2010. It's taken me almost seven years to finally get into clothes that I can fit. Years. I totally can relate. When I had had some issues with tamoxifen early on and I was still getting Herceptin every three weeks yeah. and I had some swelling in my hands. And so my doc said, well, how about we do Lupron with an AI? I had muscle and joint pain. I had the swelling. I had five different things. And I said, I'll go back to the tamoxifen. This is insane. This is not, this is worse. Mm -hmm. I hadn't had the night sweats on tamoxifen, but then with the Lupron, they totally wipe out all your hormones. So then I was like, I'm not sleeping. This is untenable. I can't do this. And I went back to the tamoxifen and I was running quite a lot. I was training for a huge endurance race. And because I was doing that, I was pushing it through my system pretty quickly. Mm. And then I ran that race in January. So I had made it through like six months, seven months. I got a bad cold while I was traveling because my immune system was still totally yeah. shot. Yeah. So then I wasn't running. And then all of a sudden I started swelling with fluid and my hands and my lymphedema got worse and I had pitting edema in my legs. Mm. Like it was nuts. And my weight started that free climb. I just knew that it was this medication, but I started asking everyone, every doctor I had, I was like, my general practitioner was like, this edema in your legs is not okay. This isn't normal. This isn't okay. But no one was trying to get to the bottom of it. People mm. were sort of like, but you got to take that thing. They give you a paper with the tamoxifen. And when I read the statistics, I was like, whoa, wait a minute. They've been telling me this is 43% effective to reduce my risk. But only 1.35% of the people had a recurrence. The research was on 2,000 people, 
half got the drug, half got the placebo. Of the people that got the drug, 10 had a recurrence out of 1,000. 17 that got the placebo had a recurrence. So it was like 0.7% of all the people had a recurrence on the placebo. I finally said to the doctor's office, is this the research? Are these the numbers? Are you telling me this is reducing my risk by 1%? (laughs) And they were like, well, we don't want you to be the 1.35%. I was like, maybe that should be my choice. (laughs) I was like, this is not 43%. This is 1%. Isn't it funny how they skew numbers? I was like, this is lying with statistics. And this is a fact that you should have told me. I feel like you have kept something huge from me. I had been feeling all, which I have had people say to me, I had someone just like a month ago at an event say, but I mean, 1%, you do everything that you can. I mean, if it reduces by 1%, I was like, well, how about you take it and you get back to me about how you feel. Then we'll have a conversation. No, my quality of life was worth way more. I know people who have taken the medication and had a recurrence. I know people that have not taken the medication and never had a recurrence. Mm -hmm. At 1%, that's a window. I could throw some spaghetti at the wall and some of it's going to stick. Right, right. Some of it's not. juggling balls in the air. Right? You're going to catch some and you're not going to catch the others. I'm so glad that you did that advocacy for yourself. I think it's so important. Sometimes people look at us funny when we say that we've done that. Why? 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 I didn't think about it until you just said it. People looked at me like I was crazy. Like, you did what? You went against the doctor's advice? Well, what did your doctor say? What did your husband say? What the f- He's not the one taking this medicine. I am. My mom took it for a month because they gave her the choice of 16 rounds of radiation or five years of tamoxifen for a DCIS that they said wasn't going to affect her longevity and they'd gotten it all. She took it for a month and she was standing on the steps at church in a tank top with her shoes off in 35 degree weather melting green because she was so nauseous when she got things back together and went back in my dad was like you're done you tried it it's over (laughs) you don't have to take that anymore and we talked about this a little bit off air as well I think she had the same initial apprehension that I had I was very confident through all of my treatment all my choices I was very clear on the choices I stood in my power around all my choices. It was really hard to tell people because they project back at you everything they've ever felt about the word cancer. So I started telling people I was getting a medically necessary upgrade. And by the time they came around to the fact that it was medically necessary, they were so thrown off by the fact that I was getting an upgrade. When they came back around to, oh, oh, oh. That's, oh. Oh, that's what it, oh, oh, yeah. When I changed the, the, the way word. that I communicated it, yeah. I didn't get the fear or the sadness 
I got their chuckle that I was getting an upgrade. Mm -hmm. And then I got their concern. But it wasn't fear and it wasn't sadness. It was concern. Like, are you okay? What do you need? Right. I disarmed them. Mm-hmm. Said about words and play on words. It's so powerful. It's very, very powerful. Like you said, you can disarm individuals with the way that you say things, the tone that you see them in, and in the, the configuration on how you say it as well. Absolutely. Yes. So it was really interesting because I was a bit apprehensive to stop taking the medication, even though I knew that I had to. And as it turned out, I was allergic. And the very first thing on the bottle says, don't take this if you're allergic. So then I could kind of be like, well, I'm allergic, so I can't Mm -hmm. take it. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't have to be as attached. And I, I tell people when they ask that question about doctors, I say, you know, our doctors are only as good as their experience. Mm-hmm. They're not all-knowing beings. Not their de- office is called a practice for a reason. Mm-hmm. They're practicing medicine. Even when you say it like that, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm being practiced on. <laughs> we put our trust in. Everyone that comes into their office, they try to tr- treat them with the same peanut butter spread, but we are all individuals and we, all do, we do not react the same. And I think for them, that's the piece that they have to learn. Yes. It's a return to curiosity. Mm -hmm. I think we need to return to being more curious about why someone doesn't fit in the box. Right. Yeah. As opposed to saying, well, that's not normal. That doesn't Mm -hmm. normally happen. Mm Because I had that a lot. Mm. To which I finally said, I don't care. It does not matter to me if this is normal. I need you to fix it. Yeah. (laughs) That's all. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the piece that they're not used to, especially the older ones that's been around for a while. They're not used to that, that dialogue between patient and practitioner, doctor, whatever code they want to use for themselves. They want you to feel that they're the know-it-all You're the patient and you're supposed to listen to what they have to say. But you know what? I've learned through my challenging and as we talked about earlier is how you, it's not necessarily what you say, but it's how you say it. I have doctors now that so respect me because of what I do and how I say it and the way that I deal with things. I go and speak at Bethesda Naval and speak to the new doctors. Also, I've had an opportunity to go on their rounds and having that dialogue in how you should address patients is so foreign, so, so foreign. When they start seeing it, they're like, oh, okay. So you were able to get this out of the patient because you act like a human. It's like teachers aren't taught how to manage a classroom. That's true. Right, right, right. Absolutely. You know, they're not taught how to manage a classroom. Doctors aren't necessarily taught bedside manner. Bedside manner. And some are really good at it and some are not. I mean, there are many doctors out there where you ask for a referral and the referring doctor will be like, oh, this is the person and they're really excellent at this specialty, but they're really terrible at talking to their patients. So as long as you know that going in. I know, right? Yeah. (laughs) I, I, 
I've heard that on plenty occasions. Yeah. But at least they know, and at least you're forewarned. So you know what to expect when you get there and you're not thrown off. So yeah. Yes. It's so true. That's a great segue into your nonprofit as well, because you really have a focus on helping people get educated and really understand their diagnosis and be able to stand in their power. I think that that is the most important thing. I see people so often in my journey, I saw people that had made quick surgical decisions to do what seemed like the lesser surgery without fully understanding, well, if I do a lumpectomy, I have to do radiation or what the emotional components to that could be as well. So I really feel like people being educated and having that info up front is so powerful in making good decisions that you never have to think about again. And you know what I think, Jennifer, that's probably one of the hardest things for us to do is to be able to be okay with whatever decision that we make. I tell people I make decisions based on the information that I have at the time. That's all I have. And I don't don't have anything else. I'll try to do as much research as I can on whatever subject it is. Simple as buying a car. You spend more time, a lot of times doing more research on buying a car than you do on your diagnosis and what the side effects are. That's one of the things I'm so giddy about my nonprofit is to provide that education element to women who are struggling with a diagnosis. But also when I was going through my chemo, I would see women there and they would be by themselves. I want to be like that welcome wagon that has the tutu, has on these nice, beautiful colors and bring you something while you're there. And if it's no more than to lift your spirits, if it's no more than have that conversation about what to expect, these are some of the resources that are out there. That's what I want to do. And I see it more where we need the education in our younger women because more and more younger women are getting diagnosed. Why? And that's the piece that's just so in my frontal lobe is that we're not getting answers to some of these very prolific questions. And one is why is more military and those in uniform getting cancer above anyone else? Why are women at 30 some years old getting diagnosed with cancer? Is it because of the birth control pills? Is it because the antiperspirant? Is it because of our environment? Those are the things that I plan on doing more research on so that when I go speak, that I speak from a point having somewhat intelligence, but also have done some research to see what the statistics are and what's actually treatments that are out there to ensure that you are getting the right. Because you don't know. You hear breast cancer and the first thing you think about is the death sentence. And that's another thing is educating us that is not a death sentence. If we know that it's not a death sentence, we can also help our family members and our friends to support us versus feeling sorry for us. That's the piece that I can't deal with, is don't treat me like a victim. Treat me as the person that you've always treated me as. I'm going to live through this. Now I need to be concerned if you're going to live through it. I was more concerned about my family. I had to educate them. That's a piece of it too. We have to be very confident in our education so that we can educate other individuals. You know, when you hear, even for me, I don't have anyone else in my family that's had it. I've had it and I've had it twice. 
how do I educate myself so that I could educate my family so they're not worried about me and I'm worried about them? That goes back to us taking our power and us being powerful in our diagnosis so that we are the individuals that are help others move through this tragedy and then into our triumph in light. Absolutely. It's so interesting because there were very few times that I sort of lost it during my my process and because that's just not where I was I was like oh I got a thing I got to do the thing and these are the steps to do the thing probably oh five or six days after my bilateral my husband was taking down all my dishes every day before he went to work he would pull them all out of the cabinet and I'd have a little stack of dishes and he'd have my coffee ready to be made because he doesn't drink coffee so you'd have everything down so I didn't have to reach into the cupboard I don't know like day six or seven, I was, oh, it's okay. You don't have to put my dishes down. It's good for me to reach into the cupboard and get a dish. I can do that now. It's okay. And he was like, well, I don't think you should be doing that. And I was like, don't tell me what I can and cannot do. And I immediately burst into tears. And he was like, thank God, hugged me. And I said, what are you talking about? And he was like, you've been too calm. Like you've been too collected. Like I needed you to just lose it. And I was like, you're insane. Stop putting my dishes down. Yeah, that, was, that, that would be my husband. You're too calm. You're too calm. I'm just waiting for you to blow. And everyone else is waiting for you to blow. Will you just blow? Right? And, and we're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I get that. I get it. I get it. Well, this has been fantastic. It's been yeah. so lovely to talk to you. The time goes by so quickly. It does. It really does. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I would love to share a link to your book on the resources under the podcast once it's available. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again, Tanja, for sharing your story today. There are always so many great elements to every story. The one I really want to focus in on today is that idea of advocacy. So for today's Personal Consciousness Minute... I want you to take a minute and think about how you advocated for yourself today. Did you say no to taking on something that was going to overload you? Did you prioritize your health and schedule your annual checkup? By the way, if you're overdue, go ahead and hit pause and go make that call. I'll wait. Great. Doesn't it feel great to have that off your to-do list? Maybe perhaps as you were thinking about this, you realized there was a missed opportunity to advocate for yourself. No problem. How can you set yourself up to be a great self-advocate the next time? As always, I would love to hear what came up for you this week over in the Cancer Cliff Notes Facebook group. Thanks for listening and have a great week.